I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode, and thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This episode, we've got a real treat, a cult movie double bill. In a while, you'll hear me talking to documentary filmmaker, musician, and most importantly, close friend, Matt O'Casey, about Michelangelo Antonioni's 60s classic, Blow Up. Now, Matt has made a string of documentaries about Quadrophenia and Queen and Fleetwood Mac. If you've ever tuned into BBC4 on a Friday night, you will have run into some of his work. But as you'll hear... Matt also has a very personal connection with Blow Up, with its mysteries and its mystique. And he's currently in the early stages of putting together a documentary about Blow Up. We'll be talking about that film in the second half of the show. But for the first half of this cult movie double bill, it's time for another location visit. When I was first thinking about making the Kermit on Film podcast, I had this idea of recording myself wandering around famous movie sites. A couple of episodes ago, I was in Newman Passage, which features very importantly in Peeping Tom, the Michael Powell film. When I first talked about this, someone said, well, that's not going to work, because the whole point about doing location reports is that you can see them. And I said, no, 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 the pictures are much better with words. And to prove it, I started describing a visit that I had made to the house that features in Straw Dogs, where Dustin Hoffman and Susan George live in Straw Dogs. And the interiors were all done in a studio, but the exteriors are shot in a remote farmhouse-style building in the west of Cornwall, which still looks pretty much the same today as it did all those years ago. It's really odd, really remote, very hard to find. And so, in the middle of winter, and armed only with a driver, a tape recorder, and a frankly terrible sense of direction, I headed off once again in search of the house from Straw Dogs. Right, well, I'm in the car on my way to what I always think of as the Straw Dogs house. We're in uh, Penwith. We are just on a road approaching the Gurnard's Head pub, which is a very popular landmark. You can't miss it because it's painted the strangest shade of yellow. We've come on a road that's led us past Patrick Heron's house, and uh, we went past a a pub called the Tinner's Arms, which is where D.H. Lawrence used to stop for a pint. But... um, I've been to the Straw Dogs house many times and every time I try and find it I always get lost and I always get confused about exactly where it is and right now we've been stopped by a very very large herd of cows in the middle of the road who are accompanied by a bull the size of a forklift truck and so we're just getting our bearings and waiting for the cows and the enormously large bull to move on so that we can head up this road toward Gurnard's Head and then take a left turn and off onto the road which I think takes us to the Straw Dog's house. Is that for us? No, it's for you. What is that? A man trap. We used to use it for catching poachers. Hello, Amy. Hello, Charlie. 
Now, a bit of background on this. Straw Dogs is a film made by Sam Peckinpah in 1971. Peckinpah had already made uh, The Wild Bunch, which was his kind of definitive statement on violence. And he then made The Ballad of Cable Hope, which had not done well, it had cost a lot of money, it had been fairly poorly received. And Peckinpah found himself at a bit of a loose end and he ended up taking on a project which he wasn't initially that enthusiastic about, which was an adaptation of a book which he described as a terrible book by uh, Gordon Williams called The Siege of Trenches Farm. And it's essentially a West Country Western. It's a story set in uh, Cornwall, in the far west of Cornwall. And Dustin Hoffman plays an academic who comes back to the original hometown, home village of his British wife, played by Susan George, where he encounters what can only be described as a rogues gallery of locals, all of whom have uh, very, very hostile feelings towards him and very ambivalent feelings towards his wife, Amy, as I said before, played by Susan George. The film was incredibly controversial, came out the same year as Clockwork Orange and French Connection, was one of the the kind of the great controversial violent texts of its time and I made a documentary about it some years ago for Channel 4 in which we came back to the original locations with Susan George to talk about the film and its legacy for a long time it had been banned on video in the UK and the British censors had just lifted the ban and as part of the documentary we took Susan George to St Burian which is where most of the village scenes are shot and out to the Straw Dog's house, the house where Dustin Hoffman and Susan George's characters live together in the film. Amy's been telling us why you came to Wakeley. To write. To meditate. Why did you come? I was drafted. Well, tell us what you do. Okay. I'm a uh, astral mathematician. Oh, never heard of it. That's because I just made it up. <laughs> I have a grant to study... Uh, possible structures and stellar interiors and uh, the uh, implications regarding the radiation characteristics. Am I boring anyone? Radiation, that's an unfortunate dispensation. It surely is. Yes, indeed. As long as it's not another bomb. You're a scientist. Can you deny the responsibility? Can you? After all, there's never been a kingdom given so much bloodshed as that of Christ. The house has variously been known as Solomon's Isle and Tor Noon. I think it now has a completely different name altogether. Um, I remember really clearly when we were doing the documentary, we really struggled to find it because it's not easy to track down. Anyway, since then, I've been back two or three times and every single time I have got lost trying to find it. I know that we're somewhere near because we're near the Gurnard's Head pub, but whether we'll find it again remains to be seen. Right, we're still crawling along behind the line of cows, um, but I've just turned the tape recorder on because I've been reminded of one of my favourite jokes from when I was a child. Two cows standing in a field, one says I'm cold, the other says that's nothing, I'm Frisian. Right, we're off, we've got to the Gurnard's Head, the cows turned right, we turned left, we're now heading west, away from the Gurnard's Head, towards Land's End, but up and inland toward where I think the house is and where hopefully we'll get before we completely lose the light so we can't see it. Um, the countryside here is really spectacular. It's very tiny, windy roads 
big old uh, Cornish hedges. If, you, if two cars pass, it's quite difficult to get them past each other without scraping the wing mirrors off. The outline of the hills and the rocks is really beautiful and elemental. I mean, it does look like the proper wilds of West Cornwall. You can see why Sam Peckinpah was so taken by by the landscape, by the scenery. It does have something very wild and remote about it. We're on the north coast of Cornwall and it's such a beautiful area. If you know anything about straw dogs, you'll know that a lot of the locals from St. Burian were actually cast in the film itself. Good night, Major. Good night, Major. Good night, Major. Watch out for sheep. We got your Wellington boots on, Major. <laughs> Years later, some of them really liked the film, some of them liked the fact that all the time that it was banned on video, officially banned on video in the UK, it was still rentable from the post office in St. Burian because they considered it to be, uh, you know, up to them whether or not they, uh, they they distributed it. And we interviewed a whole load of people from St. Burian when we were doing the documentary for Channel 4. Some of them had really good memories of the film, really enjoyed the fact that you know, Dustin Hoffman was there and it was Hollywood-style production. Others thought that the film painted all the Cornish locals as essentially kind of savages, which I have to say, I think there's an element of truth in that. Uh, so there are some ambivalent feelings about it, also because it became such a cause celebre and because it was a film that was remembered more for its violence and the controversy surrounding its central rape sequence. Not everyone was particularly happy about the notoriety that it brought, but it has continued to be a cult movie and an awful lot of that is to do with the landscape and the location and the fact that as I said it was Sam Peckinpah doing this west country western however Peckinpah himself was not in a good shape but he made the film he was drinking very heavily famously very early on in production he turned up on the door of one of the lead actors in the middle of the night beating on the door the guy opened the door Peckinpah was there with a a bottle of liquor and he said we're going to Land's End to howl at the moon and they both got in the car they went to Land's End it was freezing cold they howled at the moon and a couple of days later Peckinpah became really really ill collapsed the whole production was shut down and for a while it looked like Peckinpah wouldn't finish the film that they were going to have to get in somebody else to finish the film because he'd held, his health had uh, suffered so badly so it was a film made by somebody whose career was in crisis whose health was in crisis who'd started with a source material that he didn't like at all hold on we are being hailed by somebody I'm just going to stop for a second remember when I took care of you Amy? But you didn't, remember? There was once a time, Mrs. Sumner, when you were ready to beg me for it. Take your hands off me. It's kind of like American Werewolf in London. You see, so, so we were just driving along and suddenly a figure appeared out of the, off of the moorland, waving, waving at us frantically as if they were trying to sort of uh, wave us down. And because, because of where we are, because it is fairly remote, imagine that immediately they were in trouble. But no, no, they live here. They were just waving at the car, just as, you know, as you would expect, being fantastically friendly, unlike the uh, people portrayed in Straw Dogs the film. Scott or Causey? Why? 
to prove to you they could get into your bedroom. I don't believe that. Well, who else is around all the time? Maybe uh, we've left all the doors unlocked. I mean, it could have been anybody passing. Anybody passing? David, a complete stranger, comes into our house and decides to strangle our cat and hang her in the wardrobe. Right, we're progressing up into the hills. The roads are getting narrower. The uh, Cornish hedges on the sides of the road are getting bigger and harder to avoid. The light is definitely coming down, although it's quite spectacular because you're looking out over the, the edge of the, the North Cornish coast with the sun now down below the horizon so it's got that brooding sort of dark skies look and in fact with the exception of a couple of lights in the distance you could imagine that you were here completely on your own it is really quite imposing it's it is breathtaking breathtaking scenery but very easy to get lost in you want something out of me that it's not right to deliver that's not what i was there for But I know why you're here. Why? Could it be because there's no place else to hide? Okay, that is definitely the house. We can now see it. It's literally just breaking the top of the horizon and it's a very distinctive shape. If you've seen the film, you'll recognise it. I think it also featured in the poster of the film, the outline of it, the shape of it. And you can see again why Peckinpah was so attracted to it. From where we are, that we're our headlights on now because, the, as I said, the night is starting to come down. It looks really imposingly remote. And we're... OK, so what we're on as a road is now ceasing to be a road. It's starting gradually to turn into a dirt track. So we're now on the gravel track that leads up to the house. At the very beginning of the Straw Dogs documentary, we filmed it with me walking up this track, coming up to the house, because the track features in the film itself. You see Dustin Hoffman driving his flashy sports car up it, although frankly it would have taken the axle off because it's... This is a very, very, okay, the track divides here, right and left. I think we go, yeah, that way. Open the door, I'll blow you to pieces! You bastard. Okay. Okay, take it easy. Easy. They can't see him. Open the door! Wow, this is bumpy. This is even bumpier than I remember it. There are huge boulders, <laughs> huge boulders in the uh, in the path, and that's it. There we are. We're coming up from behind it. We have indeed chosen the right road. We have indeed found the Straw Dog's house. It's such a striking building. Once again, it looks like it's completely unoccupied. I think I've been here in total five or six times I have never seen a light on in it I've never seen anybody actually in residence in it obviously it's privately owned so you know you can't go into it you can just drive up to it but in all the times that I've been here I've never known anyone be in there which kind of adds to the strangeness of it 
it's as I look ahead it's a it's a house turned sideways to me at the moment on the right hand side there's a sort of lean-to a kind of porch and then on the left hand side there is a barn and the barn if you've seen the film is very important um, that's where the local lads are working on when uh, Susan George moves back in in fact when we came here with Susan George all those years ago when we were making the documentary we came up the track and Susan George looked at the barn and the first thing she said was they still haven't finished that bloody roof have they Okay, so I'm standing outside. I'm standing outside the house. It still looks almost exactly as it looked in the film. It's these beautiful sort of stone wall around the outside of it. Really sort of solid Cornish stone house with a, a barn right next to it. And it is astonishing how much it hasn't changed since Peckinpah shot here with Dustin Hoffman and Susan George back in the early 1970s. If, if I turn with my back to the house, you can see out to the Atlantic, which is an incredible vista. But the most extraordinary thing is just how remote it appears to be. I mean, it just, it just seems to be stuck in the middle of nowhere. And also because it has such a distinctive silhouette. I mean, just beyond, there's, a, there's another field of cows. There are windows which I, mean, I recognise from the movie itself. Again, when we came back here with Susan George, we pointed out windows that are sort of key shots in the movie that have seemed to have remained unchanged since she filmed here all those years ago. It's completely... I mean, listen, this is, as a, this is the sound of where we are. It's fantastically remote, very haunting. It's also very weird. It's got that movie location thing that it's a place that you know because you recognise it from the film, but it's also completely different because obviously the film is a is a work of fiction and uh, that in, in real life the house is nowhere near the village and the, you know, the whole thing is, a, is an artificial construct. But it's the thing about movie locations, particularly with iconic movies, there's something really odd about seeing something that you know from a film and seeing it in reality when it always appears to be, it, it's as you know it, but it's also slightly wrong. It's there, but it's not there. It's weird. It's like walking into the unreality of a movie. It's a location that you're familiar with, but you're familiar with it from an artificial construct. So when you look at it, there's something, there's just something uncanny about it. If you've ever been to Georgetown, to the, the, the steps by the house where the exorcist is meant to be set, I mean, the house doesn't look anything like it looks in the movie, but there are little bits of it that do. And there's something really odd about that disjunct between what it looks like and what you remember it looking like and its place in the film, its geography in the film and its geography in the real world. Daddy, that's this, Charlie. You put it in my sleep. I'll call you when I'm ready. Let's do it, Charlie. Every time I come here, every time we drive past, as I said four or five times before, I'm just, I am really struck by how strange it is to find 
a movie location from a film which has become so iconic for better or worse I mean some people hate straw dogs and I understand why it's just so odd that this bit of movie history is here and so unchanged so exactly like it was all those years ago right now let's see if I can find my way back home again I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So there it is, the Straw Dog's house, as hard to find as Brigadoon. You'll be glad to know that I did make it home, although we did actually get lost on the way back as well. Now for the second half of this Kermit on Film podcast, it's time to revisit another cult classic, a film by Michelangelo Antonioni, who made films like The Passenger and Zabriskie Point, and who, in the mid-60s, changed the face of cinema with his endlessly enigmatic classic, Blow Up. Sometimes, reality is the strangest fantasy of all. of Michelangelo Antonioni speak every language. This is his first in English. So, it's New Year's Eve, and I'm here in Cornwall with my very good friend, Matt O'Casey. If you've read the book that I wrote recently, How Does It Feel?, which is a book about being in bands, you'll know Matt's name, because Matt was the guitarist in the Railtown Bottlers, which is the skiffle band that I was in in Manchester in the 1980s, then on into the 1990s. We ended up being the house band on Danny Baker's television series, Danny Baker After All. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Now, the reason that you're here on this film podcast is not that we played in bands together, although that is, of course, very important. Uh, and also, if anyone's interested in that, they should read my book, How Does It Feel? It's in all <laughs> good, book, good bookstores now, with three whole chapters about the Railtown Bottlers. Three. Three whole chapters, yeah. Is the fact that your dad um, was a very well-respected actor called Ronan O'Casey, who plays a big part for me in a significant story about me discovering the ridiculousness of film criticism. And it, the short version of the story is this. Your dad had done things like he presented a very popular TV show in the UK. He went to Hollywood. He produced and wrote and starred in a number of movies. And he had a really... 50s, 50s and 60s. 50s and 60s. Yeah. And he worked with people like Jack Benny. And there wasn't anybody who's... Nicholas Ray. Uh, he, yeah, I mean, he, he was in the first working class British TV sitcom called The Larkins... 
he played Jeff Larkin, the Canadian son-in-law who was a comic book writer. And that was in a cast with Peggy Martin, David Kossoff, playing the matriarch and father of the family. Um, he also, the, the TV show he presented was kind of the first version of a mime game show on TV, the kind of precursor of Give Us a Clue. It was called Don't Say a Word. And his glamorous young assistant was Annie Nightingale in her first job in television. <laughs> so he, dad, dad had what I would describe as a truly picaresque career. <laughs> and he was also, he was one of the producers and co-writers on The Magic Christian, which I know he, yeah. you know, what didn't work out entirely as he wanted, but that's, that was a cult movie in which yeah. he was crucially involved. Yeah. So he had, a, he had an extraordinary career. And one of the most famous films he was in, well, what happened was I went to America in 1980, no, 1990 it must have been, to interview William Peter Blatty about The Exorcist 3. And you had said, oh, well, you must stay with my dad, mm -hmm. um, who very kindly, you know, offered me a hospitality because he was a he was very, very, very sort of welcoming character. And very fast, we, t we fell into conversation about films because he always wanted to talk about films. And he knew everybody or he knew... He'd, he always, he'd either worked with somebody or he knew somebody who'd worked with somebody. Yeah. And we started talking about Blow Up, the Antonioni film from the 1960s. Just in, I imagine that everyone would know this, but just in case anyone doesn't, can you do like a thumbnail sketch of what Blow Up is? Blow Up is one of those movies um, that captures the zeitgeist brilliantly. And I think that's why people love it so much. Because it, it captures a perfect moment in... The Genesis of Swinging London in 1966. And it's a film about fashion and it's about music and about sexuality and about a murder. And we'll come to whether the film makes sense or not okay. later on, because uh, that also helps the fact that, that there's a mythology around the film because it doesn't really appear to make sense. But the band he cast in the film... The photographer he cast, who was uncannily like David Bailey, uh, played by David Hemmings. The models he cast, the aspiring young actors in 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 the cast, including Vanessa Redgrave, Sarah Miles, and Peter Bowles, were just all right on the money. Have a listen to this. Keep still, keep still. Listen, keep still. I suppose the brilliant thing about it as well is that the swing 60s are seen as being this wonderful, glorious, glamorous time. And yeah, Antonioni, in a, a kind of spookily British way, unpicks it and finds the holiness in the sanctuary. Yeah. And I think that's why it's lasted, because of the fact that it isn't cliched. It's a kind of unexpected twist on the whole youth culture thing. So the story is David Hemmings' character is a photographer. We <clears throat> see him going around swinging London. He meets up with girls. He takes photographs. One day he's in a park. He takes a photograph of two people in the park. And then he manages to take a photograph in which he, he thinks he can see something in the bushes. He thinks he can see maybe a killer or something. And then he blows the photograph up and it's all about, is there a corpse in the photograph? Has he actually accidentally photographed a murder? Mm. 
Vanessa Redgrave comes into the picture. You're not entirely sure what her motivations are. And the film then actually starts to unspool and starts to fall apart. And I had a conversation with Case in which I said, you know, well, I think the whole film is about, you know, fiction versus reality. It's really, it's a big metaphor. And Case said, yeah, well, that's a very film critic reaction. You don't really know what you're talking about. And I said, excuse me, I think I do know what I'm talking about. I'm a professional film critic. And he said, yeah, but I'm in blow up. And I went, oh. And of course, not only is he in blow up, but he is the 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 central figure whose whose fate around which the whole movie revolves he is the character who ends up being found dead well it was always uh the gag in the family is that dad was basically the rosebud of 1960s experimental film he is a signifier at the center of the film who's the key to unlocking it in the same way that rosebud the sled is in citizen kane but it's, it's, I suppose, the genius of, of Dad's involvement in it. He is, I mean, well, we should also stay for a start because you're all probably wondering who my dad played in the film. And he plays Vanessa Redgrave's lover. He plays Jane's lover. That's how he's credited. And the scene where they are together in the park is where David Hammond's character, Thomas, the photographer, comes across this couple uh, a woman in her 20s and then an older man in his 40s or possibly older, played by my dad. It's what he photographs by accident in the part that becomes the centre of the film. What are you doing? Stop it! Stop it! Give me those pictures. You can't photograph people like that. Who says I can't? I'm only doing my job. Some people are old fighters. Some people are politicians. I'm a photographer. This is a public place. Everyone has the right to be left in peace. It's not my fault if there's no peace. You know, most girls would pay me to photograph them. I'll pay you. And so basically what happens is he, he stumbled on some kind of mystery which he doesn't fully understand, but then he blows the photographs up and starts looking into the photographs to see whether he can actually see something more happening. Then he goes back to the park. Then we find this whole kind of trail of deception and murder, but it ends up leading... Well, it either leads nowhere or it leads everywhere, depending on how you want to read the film. And plot spoilers ahoy, there is a famous scene at the end of the film in which a kind of mime troupe who keep appearing, you know, hither and and thither, (laughs) start playing a game of mime tennis, but there is no ball. And they're miming a game of tennis, and at the very end of it, they knock the ball out of the tennis court, and the camera follows an empty space and to where the ball would fall at David Hemmings' feet. And David Hemmings then picks up the non-existent ball and then throws it back to them. Am I right in thinking you start to hear the sound of the ball, isn't there? You do, you do. And this is the famous scene that Sarah Miles refers to as the point at which she went back onto set, having left the set because she wasn't happy with the lack of direction. (laughs) The lack of direction of actors is a fabulous theme in this film where... There was no set script. There was, as far as we know, just a treatment. And Sarah Miles um, does a love scene, I suppose, for want of a better word, early in the film, um, where she recounts it as as her asking Antonioni for direction. um, And he didn't really give her any direction. So she felt a little bit lost and left the film. I don't think any fit of peak, but... Um, she was married to Robert Bolt, I think the playwright, and 
he just enjoyed the stories coming back from from the set so much that he said please do go back and get some more stories from the set so she went back and they were filming the tennis game right so in her words antonioni said sir it's so nice to see you and she said oh michelangelo it's so so nice to be back (laughs) and she said what are you doing and he said well sir he's for the critics Which is kind of one of my favourite stories about it because it just, yeah, it it then that raises a whole another bunch of questions yeah. as to what he was doing and what the intention is. Blue four three nine, blue four three nine. Blue four three nine, blue four three nine. Go ahead, Echo. Blue four three nine, message passed and understood. Your caller doesn't like it, Emma. Tell him to get stuffed. What about all the buildings going up around the place? Already there are queers and poodles in the area. I saw some in the couple of minutes I was there. It'll go like a bomb. Over. Blue 439, what is in the area, over? Forget it. Over. Roger Wilco, standing by. But also, that's, you know, that's my experience of it. You know, it's for the critics, which is why I had this thing with, with Ronan, with Case, in which I said, oh, well, this is what it's about. And he said, yeah, that's a very criticky response because <laughs> yeah. that's what he would have thought. Now, you have been... Uh, toying for a long time with the idea of putting together a documentary about Blow Up and you've yeah. followed a lot of stories and spoken to a lot of people yeah. about it. Um, there, There is so much about the film that is culty and endlessly fascinating. One element of that is the music because there is a really, really famous scene in Blow Up in which David Hemming's character, photographer, goes to a club where a band are playing. So let's begin with... Who are the band and who's, who do we actually see? Well, you've got to wind back um, because the idea was to have a band who smashed their gear up. And obviously the band who were doing the smash up at the time were the Who. But Simon Napier Bell, who later went on to manage Wham, uh, at the time was managing the Yardbirds. And he managed to set up a meeting with Antonioni and persuade him that, ooh, those, those, those bikes from the Who, they're hard work. You don't want to be working with them. You want to work with my boys. They'll do everything that you want them to do. And of course, think about it. The Arbors were musically the hottest kind of rhythm and blues band at the time. Yeah. They didn't smash their gear up. They had beautiful guitars. So... <laughs> All of this starts to become an interesting scenario when you have a nightclub, I think, which was based on the Ricky Tick in the West End. And a set was built to be the nightclub. Um, A bunch of extras uh, were brought in to be the crowd who all stand completely statue still, apart from one person at the back. Who is? Janet Street Porter. Um, who was, at the time, an architecture student. The story goes, and this was told to me by Jeff Beck, is that the Yardbirds had recently changed lineup and now had not only Jeff Beck, but also Jimmy Page. So you had two of the greatest British guitarists of all time in one band together. These two star guitarists are stealing Keith's limelight to an extraordinary degree. Because not only are they getting all the adulation from the boys because they're playing these unbelievable solos and their chops are magnificent, 
but also the girls like him as well, so they get the screaming girls. So Jeff told me a number of years ago that all of this really got to Keith Ralph and that on the set of Blow Up, they had a trailer. And of course it took two or three days to film this short nightclub scene and they were in the trailer with each other for quite a lot of that time. And that Keith announced to the band that he had something to share with them. And what he shared in the trailer during the filming of Blow Up were a series of tapes that he had recorded on a little reel-to-reel. And they were tapes in which he described how he was going to kill Jimmy Page (laughs) and Jeff Beck in extraordinary slow, tortuous detail. And they were forced to sit there in the trailer listening to their lead singer playing them tapes in which he said he was going to kill them in these extraordinary... (laughs) <laughs> barbarous ways so that's all going on while they're trying to make this weird nightclub scene being the band who didn't actually even really break their instruments up and weren't even the band who were meant to be there in the first place and i think the story goes actually is in the end the guitar that got smashed up wasn't even their guitar i think it belonged to steve howe you know latterly of yes yeah who whose band was somewhere down the queue in terms of other bands who might do it should the Who stroke Yardbirds stroke whoever yeah. not show up and not be what we need. I think his band, who's shamefully whose name I forget, are further down the, the queue. And it was, it, was his, it was his guitar, I suppose, he got smashed up. But that piece of footage is remarkable because as far as I know, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's the only piece of footage yeah. which has... Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page in the Yardbirds on stage at the same time. Yeah, that's right. It's famous for that. And of course, they're miming and they're doing train capture rolling, which is great. And then there's this weird thing where the crowd don't react. They all stand perfectly still. And one person is dancing down at Street Porter and then smash the guitar and throw it into the crowd. The crowd goes nuts. And Thomas the photographer gets a bit of the, the, the guitar and runs out in the street and then just throws it in the gutter. So, <laughs> yeah, as with all the things in this film, it's, it's unusual. Hunch, hunch more. That's good. That's good. And the hair back, and the hair back. So this enigmatic film also involved Antonioni behaving quite eccentrically in terms of his attention to detail. Give us an example of that. My dad said the extraordinary thing about working on the film is how slow the progress of the film was because of the attention to detail. And in a weird sort of alternative to grading the pictures, which is what you do in telecine by way of um, after you've shot things, you can change the colour balance in a picture. Antonio only preferred to do in situ grading. He would spray things a different colour and that went down, not just, that wasn't just buildings, that's like spraying the trees a different colour, spraying the grass a different colour, painting the fence. And as my dad said, he just didn't like the shade of tarmac that he found in London. He wanted it to be a darker colour. So dad said very often filming would just stop while he had the street painted. 
The other thing you should know about Blow Up is so much of it's shot on location, which was in Marion Park. A lot of it's still there. Most of it's still there. It's a bit overgrown, but... Tell us where Marion Park is, because <clears> I've been there, and it's, it's got a weird atmosphere. But if people want to go and visit it, where is it? I think Marion Park is in Charlton, in south-east London. And, um, but there's an, also a shot in the park, which has been talked about quite a lot, because it's just a walking shot of David Hamming's character, Thomas, leaving the park. There's no dialogue in it at all. And the horizon was just a set of trees. But Antonioni decided that he would rather it were a set of buildings. So at the bottom of everybody's garden that backed onto the park at that point, he built a massive flat all the way along, something like 150 yards long, of three-storey houses. And the people who lived in those houses were delighted to get paid <laughs> carpenters to come in and build a whole fictional street that didn't exist. Now, the other thing about Blow Up is, I remember when I first saw it, I thought um, it was, you know, it was a pretty racy film. And I saw it in the <laughs> 1970s, but it kept, because it's mid-1960s, yeah. it was significant in terms of what it got away with, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think that's one of the fascinating things about what the film did in the bigger picture, is there is a scene where Hemmings has two young models who keep coming to a studio asking to be in a shoot. One of whom is Jane Birkin. And they end up in a sex scene, rolling in a big piece of paper that he uses as a backdrop. Um, and there is full frontal nudity in that scene. And this is 1966? This is 1966. So there's rock and roll, there's a bit of drug taking as well with... Um, Hemmings and Vanessa Redgrave smoking a joint. The film managed to challenge the censorship code in America. The censorship code was in need of change and was coming to the end, but it, it, it was a pivotal film in pushing through a new type of censorship. So rather than banning it, they made it available to, I suppose, an adult audience. Yeah. And that's very important because it actually was an incredibly successful film in America and it defied expectations and did remarkably well at the box office. To an audience who, if I get a chance to make this documentary and take it further, I would love to talk to because um, I think it would have been revelatory and revelatory for, particularly for the new Renaissance directors who are about to come through in the mid to late 60s, and I think about Mike Nichols and then Scorsese and mm. everybody else who's going to come through and Coppola, and all the others, because he was an example of an art house movie that made no sense, but ended up taking tens and tens of millions of dollars and hilariously pulling back all the money that they thought they were destined to lose on the film which is another story, because the film actually was never completed due to lack of budget. How did it happen? I don't know. I didn't see. You didn't see? Shouldn't you call the police? That's the body. Looks like one of Bill's paintings. Yes. There is a story that at one point the script made, what there was of a script, made more sense, that there was more backstory that you could see fragments of. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, the film... Initially, in the treatment stage, 
supposedly bore more resemblance to the short story that was based on the Cortazar short story that was adapted by Edward Bond, the English playwright. So supposedly it had a logic to it and was about a pre-planned murder. And you were aware of the elements of that pre-planned murder and another character being involved who is completely absent from the final cut of Blow Up. And this was always my dad's point was, if you know the film and you know that that character and that's, that plot line is there, then you know the points at which there are cutaways with no shot present because they, that shot was never shot. Because they ran out of money. Yeah. So there are points at which the characters look in another direction and there should have been another shot there. And there are, are glimpses at points of, of that other character and the car that he travelled in. Um, but you, it's forensic. You'd have to be with me as I make my documentary <laughs> and pull it apart and show you where that is. But it would have made the film make sense. In my dad's defence, he always said wouldn't necessarily have made it a better film. Mm. But what it does mean is that there wasn't necessarily the option to make it a different film because they ran out of money and they weren't able to shoot that additional storyline. And as far as I can tell, there was the intention there to film that storyline. Even if things changed during the making of it and decided not to do it, it's interesting that not having the money to complete the film as he had originally planned must have forced his hand. It must have forced his hand into having to make something, as he said famously to Sarah Miles, for the critics. Mm -hmm. Having to work towards an ending that was a confected ending. The open nature of the ending with the tennis game and the almost kind of nudge-nudge, wink-wink that's coming from Antonioni in doing it, mm. of course then precipitates a fabulous opportunity for everybody to decide that they know what the film means. And that's kind of one of the genius things. It kind of reminds me of what Pete Townsend once said about songwriting. He said, well, of course my lyrics don't make sense because if they made sense then it wouldn't allow people to place themselves in the song. And he said, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing by having the lyrics not make sense. It's allowing people to put themselves into the song. Mm -hmm. And he described it as a turnkey effect. Placing the listener into the song gives them a greater point of identification and potentially greater longevity to the art. Yeah. Is that cleverly what Antonioni is doing or is it a bit corny? Matt O'Casey talking to me about Blow Up. Now, as I said in that interview, Matt features heavily in my book, How Does It Feel? A Life of Musical Misadventures, which is a book about my time playing in bands and making music with people like Suggs and Alison Moyet and Nancy Griffith and Matt, and recording at Sun Studios and nearly getting thrown overboard from the Royal Iris. I'm currently in the last stages of my How Does It Feel tour. Um, we've played dates in Manchester and Glasgow and London and Belfast. The tour was meant to end at Christmas. But it actually did really well, so we added a couple of extra dates in 2019. And those extra dates are, uh, the tour comes to Birmingham on January the 21st and Newcastle on February the 4th. If you're interested in coming along to see me doing a live show talking about uh, how does it feel, a life of musical misadventures, then Birmingham, January 21st, Newcastle, February the 4th. You can find all the details at my website, which is markkermode.co.uk. Please do come along if you're interested. If you've enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with questions or comments, go to Twitter. You'll find me at at Kermode Movie. Thanks for listening.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.